Welcome to the Future of Risk podcast from Zurich, North America. I'm Renee Koa. The toll imposed on the world economy by cyber attacks is staggering, with a global price tag recently estimated at over $1 trillion annually. But that enormous number can dwarf the significant risks for individual businesses. A 2021 report by IBM and the Ponemon Institute put the average cost of a data breach at $4.2 million for a single organization. What's more, cybercrime is not only hitting global companies. Smaller and medium-sized companies that think they are not vulnerable are sorely mistaken. Here to talk about the current state of the cyber market, as well as offering practical tips on how your company can practice cyber resilience, are Michelle Chia, Head of Professional Liability and Cyber, and David Schluger, Head of Cyber Risk Engineering for Zurich Resilience Solutions. Michelle and David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, Renee. Thanks, Renee. Happy to be here. Michelle, let's start with you. Can you help us understand the current state of the cyber insurance market, which continues to evolve? What's driving this hard market, and how can businesses navigate it? Thanks, Renee. In order to understand the current state, we must understand how we arrived here in the first place. From when the first product was launched until about a few years ago, the cyber insurance market has been trying to help companies understand why they need cyber insurance through examples like data breaches, cyber events causing business interruption, cyber extortion, but few cyber events were actually made public to the general public. And frankly, few insured companies were actually impacted by events up until 2019. 2019 was pivotal. We had an acceleration of cyber activity. Bad actors were able to find a way to scale cyber events for monetary means. It was no longer one organization being impacted at a time. When we all worked from home due to the pandemic, the increased use of technology facilitated even more opportunities for cyber activity. These factors created an environment where control requirements and pricing both increased at the same time. Carriers were using loss experience from these events to inform the types of controls organizations needed to implement to avoid, mitigate, or minimize cyber events. Simultaneously, the 200 to 600% increase in frequency and severity of cyber events, 200 to 600% increase, indicated that carriers needed to recalibrate their pricing models. So that's where we are today. What's next? Well, we know that our use of technology continues to evolve, which means that the threat vectors will also continue to evolve and companies will need to update their controls to maintain resilience. And we'll talk about resilience in a little bit. Organizations that are unable to proactively invest in cyber controls and to upgrade their controls regularly, like we do on a personal basis with our laptops and cell phones, will fall into another camp. This is a tale of two cities theory. I expect that we will have one set of organizations that are currently resilient and will continue to maintain their resilience by proactively investing in new tools to manage their cyber exposure. These organizations may see a reasonable response in the insurance marketplace. On the other hand, 
other organizations may not have the wherewithal to continuously upgrade their systems or to make the initial investment in the first place. These organizations may continue to find it challenging to procure cyber insurance, or their rates might come to a point where it's no longer worthwhile for that financial trade-off, in their opinion. That is so sobering, Michelle. And to follow up on that, cyber has been considered a discretionary purchase, you've explained, and that means there's no governmental mandate that a company has to buy it. But you've mentioned there are other market forces compelling its purchase, right? That's right, Renee. Many sophisticated organizations recognize that being cyber resilient themselves is not enough. And they want to encourage the right behaviors from their vendors and suppliers. For example, if I'm a food manufacturer that relies heavily on sugar and my sugar provider experiences a cyber event, then my own business may be at risk of experiencing a business interruption situation or business income loss. So to mitigate that business risk, I have many options, including but not limited to requiring my sugar vendor to purchase cyber insurance too. That indicates to me that another organization thinks that my sugar vendor is somewhat cyber resilient. It also potentially acts as a financial backstop for me. I could try to leverage that insurance policy to be made whole. There are a number of other steps in between, of course. All that is to say that businesses are requiring their business partners to hold cyber insurance with greater frequency, which creates a whole nother challenge, uh, which is what if those organizations, those vendors and suppliers are unable to procure cyber insurance? That is a question, and that's for another podcast, I think. Definitely. I also wanted to talk about the additional benefit that come from cyber policies, specifically the guidance on recovery and remediation services. Given the prevalence of cybercrime, prevention cannot be the only tactic. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there are a couple of components in that question, and I will at some point hand this over to Dave on some of the um, things that can be done from a risk engineering perspective. But let me start from my viewpoint. Traditionally, insurance is perceived as a financial transaction. On the other hand, typically, cyber insurance policies offer more than just the financial risk transfer. Many cyber carriers have built relationships with firms that specialize in cyber recovery and remediation services. For example, We partner with law firms that have experience with thousands of cyber cases and thousand more of those closed calls. These firms help victims maintain privilege and then also walk through the various next steps of notifying law enforcement if applicable or connecting with forensics investigators to find out what happened to stop the bleeding. The point is, we know what happens next and how to respond quickly to help minimize the ongoing event. And if we don't, we have a whole team of vendors behind us, partnering with us, alongside us, with whom we have relationships that have experience in those areas that we don't. To add to this, as I mentioned, I was going to pass it on to Dave. Um, This is where he and his team really shine. Not only do we have these post-event expertise, but we're even better at proactively identifying additional areas of strengthening at the beginning of the risk transfer relationship before an event actually occurs. Thanks, Michelle. It's a great point. And absolutely, 
investing in you know what we'll call cyber resilience, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that upfront before any sort of breach can definitely make a difference in if an event ever happens, what that looks like. I like to think, and I've seen it in practice, that we as your insurance carrier, our interests are completely aligned. So we want to help you become the best risk that you can be. Um, and then if an event takes place, and you know, Michelle, as you kind of outlined some of the vendors and other service providers that are standing ready to help you recover, we want you to be able to recover and get back to business as quickly as possible. Um, so we're really, you know, again, aligned in wanting the best outcome, um, which I think is a unique aspect of cyber insurance. I want to talk more about resilience, but first, Michelle, I wanted to ask you about a major misconception I think many companies make, which is assuming their general liability or property policies would cover a cyber event. Yes, this is where a broker or agent can provide more specific advice. Every combination of policies is unique, and so this is where a broker or agent can step in. Also, I'm not a property or general liability policy expert, but what I do know is that there have been substantial evolutions in policy language in the past few years. As technology evolves, on the other hand, you also want to make sure that you have a form that is up to speed with the current environment, as well as a carrier that has experience in dealing with various manifestations of cyber events. The claims teams and vendors, you wanna have the right ones in place to help walk through these complex and ever evolving situations. And you also wanna work with someone that is forward looking and innovative for what is about to come. The whole point that cyber insurance is like any kind of insurance, it's important to have, but it cannot prevent a cyber incident. Only robust cyber risk management practices can do that. And Dave, I wondered if you would talk about what we mean by resilience when we talk about cybersecurity. Yeah, sure thing, Renee. So resilience is the concept of investing in the tools and the programs and all the capabilities and all those contingent options that you want to have available to you that can address cyber risk both before anything happens and then if necessary, once something does happen. I really believe it starts at the beginning. First, do you know at a very deep level what assets, both digital assets, paper records, um, and everything else, do you understand what you have and how those are critical to your operation or how they might be attractive to threat actors? You can't know what you need to protect until you know what you have. Then the second thing becomes, you know, needing those protective controls that can stop a cyber threat actor from actually breaching your system. And this is what a lot of us think of as cybersecurity, right? It's firewalls and it's various tools that can, you know, keep threat actors out and other tools that can alert you if they've breached your system. These are all sort of those commonly considered cyber tools. It really means investing equally in how can you keep threat actors out of your system? And if they get in, what can you do about it? It's important to have that balance. I think about you know the 
response and recovery that is necessary in those first few minutes when an event is discovered, the days that follow, and the months even after that, how are you going to continue your business operations and keep the company afloat? Um, a few things to think about, you know, don't think about cyber resilience as an afterthought that you can add to your business later. Think about cyber resilience as something that you should try to build in from the beginning. So I'll give you a few examples. Do you choose to use a single data center or are you going to choose to use two or even more geographically separated ones? Clearly, one of those is going to carry lower risk and have more resilience built in. Do you have a guest Wi-Fi on your network? Or are you going to completely separate that away, again, to reduce risk? How often are you backing up your network and your critical data? When it comes to data, do you need the data that you have? And if you do, how long should you keep it? This is all about reducing your attack surface and actually reducing the damage that can be caused if an attack is successful. I'd like to add to what Dave's talking about um, because it's not all technology based. There's also a human element to it. We as employees of organizations are part of this. Is the phrase that you use, Dave, threat surface? Um, there's Absolutely. a human there's a human element to it at the end of the day, and it's another way that an organization can mitigate risk. It's not just creating more risk, it also can minimize risk. So to articulate this a little bit differently, we all get emails. Many of us surf on the web and click on links on our corporate laptops. This is another method that bad actors can use to penetrate corporate networks. In the same way we practice fire drills, Employees need to be trained on how to avoid phishing with a PH, phishing attacks. Well put. And um, at Zurich, we employees consistently receive um, uh, simulated phishing attacks. And I'm proud to say I got a little badge last year, but we won't talk about this year. So. <laughs> But it's wonderful because not only does that help protect the company, when I'm on my personal system at home, I'm wiser too. Now, Dave, over the past decade and even the past few years, and I suspect probably even the past few months, the nature of cyber attacks continues to change and evolve and, as you said, grow. So I'm guessing a company's response has to be nimble. Oh, absolutely. That's, I think that's an operative word for addressing cyber risk forever. Um, this is a risk that has continued to morph and evolve. And as such, what you do to protect yourself and your organization today may not be enough tomorrow or a few days later. I remember watching a 60 Minutes episode several years ago about a municipality under a ransomware attack and how novel that was and how much we were learning about the threat of ransomware at the time. Fast forward several years later, it's everywhere. My grandparents know the term ransomware and you can't pick up a newspaper without seeing it in the headlines. So I think that really tells you something. It is absolutely prolific. Threat actors are getting more sophisticated. The industry of cyber crime, if you wanna call it that, is growing. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of 
pretty troubling and interesting things out of their activities. I'll give you a couple examples. So threat actors are now getting sophisticated to the point of demanding a fairly consistent percentage of a target's revenue as their ransom. So they may target five to 10% of the corporation's revenue. That's showing us that they're becoming more mature and have a deeper understanding of their target. And that may be you. So maybe just to explain ransomware briefly, historically, it's meant a threat actor breaching the system and encrypting or locking up some of the data that you need and hold dear. And then, as the name would suggest, offering a ransom to decrypt it and give it back to you. That's still occurring on a daily basis. But now we're seeing what we call double and even triple extortion. And this is a real threat. What that means is that not only are they encrypting your data and holding it ransom, but even if you pay that ransom and they decrypt your data and give it back to you, they may have also stolen it or exfiltrated it. And now they're going to hold that hostage for a second ransom or else they'll release it into the public. So again, the threat environment just continues to get more challenging for organizations and you know, that's backed up by the fact that all of these offensive cyber tools that they're utilizing, those are evolving too. And they're incredibly widely available. So it's really challenging for companies to stay cutting edge. In my observations, no organization handles 100% of their cybersecurity in-house because you can't learn from what you can't see. So I think the best organizations are really leaning on partners and collaboration and peers and really all joining forces, essentially. Yes, and that's from a defense perspective. The way we're using technology as a society, whether personally or from a corporate perspective, these devices that are connecting to the internet, that's that's what's evolving. 15 years ago, phones did not connect to the internet up until a few years ago, cars, cranes, TVs, elevators, washing machines didn't connect to the internet. I mean, who knows how we'll engage with technology in the future? Maybe Disney's Wally movie is fortuitous. My point is the way we use technology, which especially when connected to the internet, creates additional cyber risk to us as individuals, to organizations, and that is going to change. Threat vectors will also evolve with that. And the ways that bad actors will manipulate our usage of technology will also evolve. Great points from both of you. Thanks. And, you know, I want to go back, Dave, to that ransom demand, uh, those figures of 5 to 10% of revenue. Because to reiterate, and this is for Michelle too, this isn't just impacting multinational corporations here. That 2021 IBM study I mentioned reported that 60% and that's 60% of businesses with fewer than 500 employees go out of business within six months of a cyber attack. And only 8% of businesses with fewer than 50 employees even have a dedicated budget for cybersecurity. And the number grows, but just to 14% with 50 to 250 employees. Renee, it's a huge risk for small and medium companies. There's no question they're becoming more vulnerable. Um, the reason is that they often represent 
easier targets than these large, sophisticated multinational corporations. The stakes are incredibly high for these companies, whether it's thin margins or other factors that make them more susceptible to, you know, blips in their revenue. But, you know, there's a lot at stake for these organizations. And so while they might be less protected, they also typically don't have the same resources, whether, again, in-house or through their various partnerships, to help actually reduce that risk for themselves. And they certainly don't have the capabilities that a large organization would have to respond in the face of an event. So I think those consequences you highlighted are absolutely accurate. And of course, you know, they're dire. This can lead to loss of customers. It could lead to severe disruption throughout the business. Um, it could also lead to bankruptcy. That's what's in it for you, individual listener tuning in today. But I, I think it's also important to note that when one or a few small or even mid-sized organizations are impacted, it can also impact the broader economy as well. With the global economy, with companies focusing on what they're good at and outsourcing everything else, we have created a significant um, interdependency on each other. Our economy globally, or even just domestically, is so reliant on other organizations being able to make good on their promises. And when that doesn't happen intentionally or unintentionally, then we experience blips. The more significant the cyber event, for example, one or a handful of organizations, or even a critical organization, an organization that's critical to our infrastructure, the more significant these cyber events are, the more disastrous these events can be to our economy holistically. Michelle, those are great points. And you know, if we think about the global supply chain, everything over the last several decades has moved to just in time. And so any of those little blips causes this ripple effect throughout the entire chain, throughout the entire globe, that downstream, you may be impacted by someone else's event. It could also impact your customer's ability to buy uh, your product. And so all of these disruptions, they can have their root in, in cyber issues. And that's why it's so important that we take that defensive posture. Exactly. Well, related to that, Dave, you said something that really resonated in an earlier conversation. Here, businesses are navigating technological disruption to be successful, and then they're getting punished by cyber criminals. And you said it's all so unfair. Yeah. So, you know, this is what I call an asymmetric threat. Um, cyber defenders, they have to win a hundred percent of the encounters every single time they have to be the winner and these cyber criminals they really only have to win once and so to me that is incredibly unfair um it's also what gives me you know passion for what i'm doing right we get to help our customers to build the resilience that will help them win more of those um, occasions so what we profess to our customers to practice is defense in depth. And this defense in depth concept essentially means having multiple layers of protection from firewalls to anti-malware, from endpoint protection to security, incident and event monitoring, and a variety of others. 
But it's not just the technical controls. It's also things that Michelle touched on. Employee training, incident response capabilities, business continuity planning. All of these things are not technical in nature, but they're very important in order to get the best outcome if you're the subject of a cyber attack. And we should also remember that at least 90% of the breaches that we see start with that phishing email and somebody usually clicking on a link that they shouldn't have. We also see that a high proportion of threats exploit a commonly known, otherwise known as patchable vulnerability. And so closing some of these loopholes are relatively easy. And it's simply that hygiene that more companies really need to have and, and make part of their DNA, and that will make them a much more difficult target. So let's talk a little bit more about defense, because larger companies have chief information security officers, also known as, am I saying this right, CISOs? Correct. Okay. okay. And not every company can afford to hire one. So what can a company do if they have a smaller budget? Like anything, having a smaller budget doesn't mean that you should ignore the need, right? You have to do more with less, as, as we're all told. So you can definitely still practice the risk management that's necessary with these limited budgets and a smaller staff. I advise take a risk-based approach. So that means invest where you're going to get the most bang for your buck or the most risk reduction per dollar spent. First, identify and quantify and manage what you can. So someone has to steer the cybersecurity strategy at your company, even if only on a part-time basis. The most common thing that I see for smaller organizations is they instruct their head of IT or their outsourced IT provider to also do security. So on the side, we need you to also make our organization really secure. But remember, that individual, first, they may not have the right expertise, and so that may not be the most effective spend for you. And then second, security and IT aren't the same. They don't actually have the same goal. Security wants everything to be as secure as possible, and IT wants everything to be as available as possible at all times. And so you need a little bit of separation in order to allow for that healthy tension for security and IT to find that right middle ground for your company. Excellent point. I never even thought of that. So can you offer some examples of things you'd recommend a smaller company do? And I'm going to add that I suspect these would also be great refresher points for any size company. Happy to. This won't be an exhaustive list by any means, but I would say starting off, organizations absolutely need multi-factor authentication. This is a really strong defense, essentially, where you need another form of authentication. So not only your username and password, but maybe a text that goes to your phone or a token that you hold, something else that says you are who you say you are. And these days, it's practically required to have MFA in order to gain insurance in the marketplace. And so that's certainly a starting point. The second, I would say, is Privileged Access Management, or PAM. This is widely adopted, and it's becoming very mainstream. Um, 
It's a tool that essentially stops threat actors from accessing a place they're not supposed to or using some rights that have uh, administrative or super user powers. Without getting into too much detail, I can just say this is a really important defensive mechanism to stop threat actors if they are to get in. And it lets them essentially not move around and do what they're trying to do. Then I would say consider a security operations center or SOC monitoring service. So this is typically an outsourced firm that's going to monitor your environment remotely 24 7 365. So on 4th of July when at midnight, they will get the alert that something has happened in your network before you do, and they will be able to take action on it. And that's so important because one of the most challenging parts of formulating a full cybersecurity strategy is making sure that you both get and see and then action the alert. So you've invested in all these tools, but if you don't actually hear the alarm bell going off, you can't take action on it. So that's SOC as an outsource provider is super necessary. Then I'd say security and awareness training. This is a building block. It's super important. We already talked about it today. And as we know, phishing is prevalent. That's typically the way in. So if you can train employees and other end users to practice better cyber hygiene, it will really protect the overall organization. And then the final thing I'd say is to have really strong backup capabilities, typically cloud-based, and make sure that you test your ability to respond and recover using those backups. You definitely don't want to be learning how to restore your full environment from backup uh, when you need to. So that's a drill. It's something that you can practice. And that's a really great way to build resilience into your overall network. David and Michelle, this conversation has been fantastic. I really appreciate all of the practical advice and really a complicated topic being explained and clarified in very straightforward language. So thank you for that. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Renee. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. It's been fun. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at ZurichNA.com and join us next week. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.